The big idea today is I must hope in God in dark times. It is dark. I'm glad we had two weeks off to take a breath. And I'm glad that uh, Pastor Ben preached about fasting last week. If one I could tell, he got you out early. And so I know there's a petition going on to get rid of Pastor Jackson and get the guy to speak short. But uh, it's not always the case. We're not always going to be in Revelation. But I know it's been heavy. And I know that it can feel dark. But don't forget, this is supposed to be a blessing on us. Those who are believers, don't get caught up in the darkness of this. We worship. We watch for his return and we warn others, but we ourselves don't need to get caught up into fear. It it can feel oppressive, I understand. So two weeks off is probably good. And then this week is one of the the darkest, I believe, as we, we move forward. But there's hope. Even in this message today, it ends with just a glimmer of Who's actually in control? It gives us this, hey, hey Satan's going to have a day. He's going to have a moment. And he's got a portion, but he only has that much. He doesn't have it all. God is in control. He still sits on the throne. And there's hope in dark times. Now, we didn't do it this time in Tennessee, but many other times we've gone in the Tuckalichi Caverns. Anybody here ever been in the Tuckalichi Caverns in Tennessee? No, you've got to get down there, folks. It's wonderful. If you haven't been there, anybody been to Cave City, Kentucky? Anybody been in the Mammoth Caves? Yeah. Oh, good for you. We got some other people. Now, that's my family's stomping grounds. That's where my kinfolk are from. We own part of that mountain. And the uh, go-karts in the hotel that used to be at Mammoth Cave, that was all my, my family. We used, I used to go there every summer, help run the go-kart track. Uh, love that area. But you love going in these caves in the summertime, and it's hot outside, but you get on there, and it's cool. And it doesn't matter if you're in the Tuckalichi Caves or Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. They always do the same thing. They get you deep, deep deep down in the cavern and they get you to a room and they kill the lights anybody ever been there now in Tuckalichi caverns they make you sit down they actually make you sit down in this area because they know that it's so dark people fall down and so i don't remember about mammoth cave this bunch of hibblies down there so i don't know what they did but they cut the light they tell you now everybody stand right there put your hand in front of your face and then they and i'm telling you i i know what dark is But I'm always kind of surprised how dark dark is in one of those caves. You literally can't see your hand in front of your face. There's nothing, not a hint of light. If there were a hint of light, there would be light. But there's an absence of light. When we get deep into Revelation like we are, we're in the, we're in the caverns of Tuckalichi Mountains. We are in the deepest part of the Mammoth Caves. And there's no light, seemingly. But God keeps reminding us, no matter how evil it gets and how dark the times get, he shines a light on the situation. And today, before we're done, there'll be a light shine to let us know who's really in control. Key verse today says, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them revelation 14 13 as dark as the times get there are those that will not follow the antichrist who will not take the mark who will not bow down and they will die a martyr's death but the bible even gives hope here and said blessed are those blessed are those even if they die their labor from their deeds will follow them there's hope 
We've gone a long way. We've done a lot. Matter of fact, I've had people contacting me saying, how are you doing this? How are you doing the Revelation series? They're kind of watching from afar, and they're saying, you're going fast. I said, on purpose. If we went any slower, boy, it would be even harder, and I'd have to get more into the weeds. I'm trying to stay out of the weeds. There's a lot of things I'm not trying to attribute things to because then you would argue with me, and I don't want arguments. I don't want to be against anybody. There's a lot that we could wonder about. But I'm going to avoid wondering and try to just show you what's there. And so we're kind of going a little speedy through this. We've dealt with the sealed judgments. I spelt the word forthright from here forth. All right, so I spelt it wrong for the first couple of weeks. I spelt fourth instead of fourth. So from here forth, it's the fourth seal. But we went through all the seals. And remember, there's always a parenthesis pause. After each of these sections. So we went through the seal judgments. After the seventh seal of of the judgments, boom, we enter into the trumpet judgments. And after the seventh trumpet, which was the third woe, there's this seal, or this uh, parentheses. And we're still in the parentheses right now. In, In Revelation 13, 14, we're between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. And there's this parentheses and we're, we're learning some other things. So what is what we're learning today? We learn about the first beast and the second beast. So let's head there in scripture. Let me read. I'm going to read uh, chapter 13, 1 through 10. Follow along if you can. Revelation 13, 1 through 10. The dragon, remember who the dragon is, none other than Satan himself. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder. And followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter uh, proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months, three and a half years. We're in the last half of the tribulation. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is going into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is being killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patience and endurance, patience, endurance, and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So here we are. We're entering into the second three and a half years, 42 months of the tribulation, the worst of the worst. And don't forget again, it is God's pouring out of wrath. And we have the person of the Antichrist, the first beast, uh, told to us in, in, in verses 1 through 3. Who is this person? Well, first it, it describes him as coming out of the sea. In prophetic material from Old Testament forward, coming out of the sea refers to a Gentile. 
Those are the Gentile people. And so we believe that the Antichrist will be of Gentile descent, not Jewish descent, which wouldn't make sense because the Antichrist's whole purpose is to bring uh, condemnation. He's, he's anti-Semitic. Uh, he, he's Hitler on steroids. He's against the Jewish nation. And he comes down, and he comes down hard there. Uh, again, Daniel 7, 1 through 8, talks about this, the, the beast coming out of the sea. Seven heads, there's much, again, much speculation. What are these seven heads? Some people think they're simply the seven continents. That would make sense. Uh, but I believe, uh, looking at prophetic material, that it's the Israel occupiers, people that have occupied Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then eventually the Antichrist will overtake Jerusalem and Israel and reign from there. And these are people that have done that in the past. That means the seven heads. The ten horns are a ten-nation confederation supporting the Antichrist. Apparently when the Antichrist comes to power, there are nations that think we better get on board with this power, and so they will head towards supporting the Antichrist. Again, uh, what's happening at this point is, is horrific. The Antichrist has, has broken the peace contract with Israel and now is attacking Israel and is overtaking Israel. And you've got ten nations. Who, come, who are they? I'm not going to say. Uh, I don't know for sure. But if you look in the scriptures, Daniel 2 uh, and 7 has a lot to do with who these are. Uh, but it's a ten-nation confederation who support the Antichrist. Then we've got the lion, the bear, and the leopard uh, who, who are these? These are a direct reference out of the book of Daniel. Uh, again, it's almost a quote from the book of Daniel with the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Uh, I believe the lion is Babylon, bear is Medo-Persia, leopard is Greece. You're like, where are these places? There's a fancy looking, I've looked at for hours and still have a hard time understanding, but it's a really cool map. Uh, it looks at all these things from Daniel chapter 2. Again, if you want to go extra and you want to go deeper, I'd encourage you to grab a commentary, read through Revelation, do the cross work, look at Daniel 2, 7, 13, 14, and on. And, and a lot of what we're hearing here, the people, uh, John himself would have understood from Daniel. He would have heard of these prophecies. He'd heard of these things coming. And so he's referring to those as what he's seeing. So you got the, the image of Daniel 2. You've got the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast. And then you've got the Babylonian Empire. We're looking at the same map, by the way, if you kind of look at this. But at different periods, you've got the Babylonian Empire, uh, then the Medo-Persian Empire, Turkey, uh, all the way to the east, uh, the, the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Rome really controlled everything around that sea. Uh, this is the time of Jesus, uh, the time that John's writing, I believe. The Roman Empire was the, the rule of the world, and these are all people that had taken power. And so then you've got, eventually, the kingdom of Christ, the Messianic kingdom, which is the whole world, and Christ is the one with the crown. So take a look in Scripture. Do some backtracking and thinking about who this, the, this, this lion, this bear, and this leopard all represented in, in this, this image. That is this person, the Antichrist. What is his activities? Well, he is worshipped. Again, God says from the beginning, you must worship God and God alone. And Christ, his son, the king, we worship him and we worship him alone. And the Antichrist comes and he demands to be worshipped. Go back to Daniel and you go back and see that the kings, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted to be worshipped. Idols were set up. Laws were made to worship this idol. We've been in a world that constantly encourages worshipping false idols. 
We could go around right now and name some of the false idols of this world. There's money, there's, there's cars, there's motorcycles, there's boats. There's, there's so many things that people worship. And what do I mean by worship? It's where their money goes. It's where their love goes. It's where their heart is. And it's anything other than Christ. It can be sports. It can be news. It can be politics. It can be anything where your heart goes where God is not sitting on the throne. And so we live in a world... And I believe as today we ought to look at this as we ought to be thinking what is our draw away from God and to today? What are, our, what are our idols? What are we putting on the throne and leaving God off? The Bible says this Antichrist shows up on the scene and he is worshipped. He will blaspheme God and his people. His names are blasphemous. The, all these imagery that we get, it's all against God. He will make war with believing Israel. Again, uh, when you looked at this, I hope you saw that it will be hard on God's people. Don't be confused there. I don't believe that saved people are there. People look at that and they forget about who God's people originally were. And they think, God's people, that's us. So the believers are here. No, no, don't forget. God's people, specifically in Scripture, when it says God's people, he's referring to Israel, his chosen people, called by his name. And then the Bible followed that up with, and then all the peoples of every tribe, nation, tongue. That means the Gentiles. So it's very clearly a reference when it says God's people to the Jewish people. Probably Jewish people that didn't get the Messiah today. And again, I, I appreciate we, we contacted uh, Jews for Jesus. We tried to have uh, what was Rabbi Glenn. Remember Rabbi Glenn came years ago for Good Friday. We tried to get Rabbi Glenn again, but they weren't quite doing life programs yet. We love to get Rabbi Glenn to come and to do the Seder meal on stage here so you can realize the beauty and imagery of the Jewish. If you don't understand Jewishness, it's really hard to get all of Jesus. He grew up in the system. He, that's who he was. God's chosen people. So Many of them today are missing the Messiah. That's why we call them Messianic Jews, like Rabbi Glenn. They're Jews from birth, but they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So we call them Messianic Jews. They're Jews that have not missed the Messiah. They believe in Jesus. They're saved like you and I. I believe at the rapture, those people will be in heaven with us. But there are Jews that have been practicing religion. And they're going to be woke up, I believe. They're going to see that, oh my goodness, it was Jesus All this time, it was Jesus who was the Messiah. And they're going to suffer greatly, I believe, during this tribulation time. The Antichrist will make war with them. He will gain control over Israel. I believe he'll rule the whole world, but he'll do it from that area. He establishes authority over the entire earth. That is the first beast. And no, I didn't spend a lot of time supposing that it's got to be Kamala Harris. She's the Antichrist. And oh, no, it's got to be. You know, we've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years of wondering who the Antichrist is. If you're a Democrat, you're sure that Trump is the Antichrist. If you're a Republican, you're sure that Biden's the... And you know what I say to all of you? (laughs) Stop it. Just stop it. When, When this happens, this is going to be... This is going to be worse than your gas prices going up, people. Don't, don't take today's political nonsense and demand that it's biblical on proportions of tribulation don't please don't i was in nashville for one night after the wedding i I left you guys and 
Uh, they were in the wedding I was at in Nashville, so I'm talking to them just for a second. But I left you guys, and I went to Nashville. And wouldn't you know, we get to Nashville for one night, just one night alone. It's the Southern Baptist Convention. It's happening right across the street. All the Southern Baptists in the world are literally there. I mean, in the world, because Send, Send is there. And the Southern Baptists, they do something right. They do missions right. They got missions all over the world. So they had missionaries. That, our hotels were filled with Baptists. Baptists everywhere we went. And so we were looking things up when we got there and just seeing, well, who's speaking? Am I going to run into John Piper? Who am I going to run into? We don't know. And so we're kind of looking. Uh, no lie. This is not a lie. We're still arguing about it in our family today. We get in our hotel and we get in the elevator and we're just about ready to go up and the door, somebody puts his hand on the door and drags in four suitcases and he's, he's getting in and, and I'm standing there and I'm looking. I look at his name card and then I look at him and I'm like, are you the Tim Hawkins? Yeah, I love that guy. <laughs> And he looked at me, he goes, when I have to be. So we rode the elevator up with Tim Hawkins, the, the amazing comedian, Christian comedian. We believe he was there for the Southern Baptist Convention. But anyways, the next day, we understood that there was a lot of controversy. And there were people protesting. People are protesting because if you're Southern Baptist, apparently you're not conservative enough. And so the people that are really conservative are on the streets with microphones showing you how conservative they are because they're more conservative than you are. And so we're walking up a street, my, my daughter and I, the Lord blessed her with my jeans, and so we were up at 6 a.m. to get coffee. And so we're walking to my favorite coffee shop in Nashville, just the two of us, and we're walking back to our hotel, and I hear the guy in the microphone, you're all going to hell, you're all going to burn, you're not God's chosen people. And he goes on and on and on. And I realize he's yelling at the Southern Baptist because they're not conservative enough. And my daughter looks at me and she said, don't. I said, I'm not going to, I'm fine. I'm on vacation. I'm drinking my coffee. I'm fine. And we get closer and closer and I just lost my mind. This man and his children and everybody else that were there were so rude. So disgusting that I put my nose in his nose and I said, stop yelling about what you're against and say something that you're for. He didn't like that. The one thing I know leaving Nashville that day is the Southern Baptists feel like they've been in the tribulation, persecuted. And there's a fat man who thinks that he was persecuted on the street by another fat man with coffee. <laughs> and everybody goes home thinking they're persecuted, and nobody was. Nobody was. We think persecution is, especially in America, a minor inconvenience. That's what we... We think a minor inconvenience is tribulation. We think a minor inconvenience is suffering. You have no idea the biblical proportions we're talking about when we get into Revelation. When we talk about an Antichrist, we're not talking about somebody who makes your instant world a little less convenient or more expensive for four years until the next cycle comes through and we find a new Antichrist to proclaim. Stop it. When this Antichrist comes, he's going to come not, not, not threatening to take away tax exemption status, on churches, which would be awful. I would hate that. Stop calling that persecution. Stop calling that the Antichrist. When this Antichrist arrives, the world will know. This will be an awful time. When death will be instantaneous by a word of a mouth, 
when fires call down from heaven. So until one of our presidents calls fire down from heaven and destroys the Jews, stop playing that game. That's my hobby horse for today. This is the Antichrist. He will establish authority. The second beast comes after him, and he's the false prophet. And by now, you should maybe even catch a little glimpse of what's going on here. At Satan's best, he's an imitator of God. He wants to be God, and so he imitates at his best, trying to be like God. And so what do you have? You have the dragon. Everybody say the dragon, which is Satan. you got the first beast, which is the Antichrist. Everybody say Antichrist. And then you have the second beast, which is the false prophet. What do you have, my friends? You have an unholy trinity with God the Father, Satan, God the Son, the Antichrist, and God the Holy Spirit, which is this false prophet. On Satan's best day, he's just trying to be like God. He fails miserably, and it's short-lived. But here we have the false prophet. Let's read about that in 13 verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. Now, I'm not going to make too big of a deal out of this, but if the first beast came out of the sea, represents a Gentile, the second beast could come from the Jewish descent. We don't know, but at least it's probably a religious figure. It has two horns, the Bible says, which usually signifies religious authority. Uh, Let's keep going. It exercised all the authority of the beast. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. He's a, he's a, a wolf in sheep's clothing here, the second beast. Um, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. Was this some sort of a triad attempt of faking a resurrection like Jesus? We, we don't know for sure. Could be. Uh, we know that Satan is an imitator, and so uh, we've got this, this first beast who had a fatal wound in one of its head. But he's back and he's healed. And then it says, uh, verse 13, it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Let's do his person first. Comes out of the earth. Is he Jewish? I don't know. But is he religious leader of some time? Probably. Two horns like a lamb. He appears harmless. Demonstrates satanic authority when he speaks. So he's got the dragon is his voice. Satan is definitely the power broker. And then his word is law. Those who disobey, they're punished. And then we got his activities. I'll continue to read. We're at verse 14. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast For it is the number of man. That number is 666. Now you're all like, now we're into Revelation. Here we go. We got the first time, 666. Have you ever gone to the C-store and got something and the total came up 666? Anybody ever have that? Did you buy something else just to make sure? Did anybody do that? Okay, I've done it too. Sharon, I'm going to admit it. I just get that 666 number. You're like, ah! We we, we are freaked out by this. The number of the beast. As best I can tell, the Bible tells us plainly it's the number of 
man. From what I can tell, man was created on the sixth day. 666, you've heard me say many times, to repeat something in Scripture is to give it more uh, bigness, largeness, right? Uh, so, if, you know, if it's a pit, you say, watch out for the pit pit. That means it's a very large pit. But only one time in Scripture is something tripled, and that is holy. When the angels cry, God is holy, holy, holy. That's the only time you've got a, a triple of something, which means he's incredibly holy. You don't do that. You're overdoing it when you do that. So you can't overdo the God's holiness. So it's the only time it's appropriate. So we've got 666, the number of man. This is humanism on steroids. This is humanism par excellence. Man was born on the sixth day, and it's all about man, 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 worshiping man. So this is humanism played out to its full extent. We'll get to that in a second, but we're going back to the false prophet. He directs worship to the first beast. We're talking, he is the one, almost like a John who cried out, behold, the Lamb of God, the second beast is the false prophet who's there to cry out, here is the beast, he's the Antichrist. And he directs worship to the Antichrist. He performs deceiving miracles. This has always cracked me up. Remember in the Old Testament and the plagues? Remember when Moses would call down the plagues? Remember? And then they had frogs all over the place. Frogs everywhere. Frogs. They couldn't walk anywhere. It would just be awful. My dog is scared to death of frogs. He's scared to death. He will not go to the potty. Because there was a big bullfrog at the bottom of the steps of our deck. And now he will not go. He goes out with his ears down really low and he looks down the corner. Every time. I'm like, who is your owner? He must be a wussy. You're scared of everything. One frog. Moses called down a plague and there were frogs knee deep. And what did Pharaoh's prophets do? They imitated. They imitated the plague. They brought down more frogs. I mean, can you imagine that? Moses, we can do that too. More frogs. Thanks a lot. We've got a frog problem, and you want to show your power by creating more frogs. And this is what the beast does. The the false prophet comes along, and he gets to perform signs. So what does he do? He calls down fire. (laughs) We've had enough fire and destruction. But he calls down fire from heaven to show this power. So he uses this false, deceiving miracles. He gets the people to erect the image to the beast. Again, reminds us of the image to Nebuchadnezzar. He causes the image to breathe and speak. Our God says, do not create any image to worship. And then God actually mocks false idols by saying they don't even breathe and they can't even talk. Remember that? I've shared that before that God often says, why do you worship something that cannot breathe and doesn't speak? I am the living God, the God of breath and the God of the word. And so what does this false prophet do? He he makes him erect this image and he he gives breath to it and a voice to it. So the people are wowed and, and, and God the whole time is going, you're just a cheap imitation. You're just a cheap, cheap imitation. He controls commerce by forcing everyone to take this mark, mark of the beast, the mark of man, the number of man, humanism par excellence. I won't go into this. I know so much has been done. I, I, 
I remember I, early on when we started this, I talked about the, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast and they're not injecting you with microchips. I know what has been said there. I watched a whole special on how big the needle has to be to insert. Because we know everybody's like, yeah, well, my dog has a chip. Yeah, well, the, 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 the size of that needle is huge. We were talking about that, weren't we? These are medical people. It's a huge needle in order to get a microchip underneath the skin. And so when you went to Rite Aid and got a shot by some lady who couldn't even feel, it, it was not a microchip. Because that they're putting a plastic straw through your arm and blowing that thing in. It's huge. You're going to know it. And so they weren't injecting you with microchips. I don't know. Back looking in history, it's fun to think, well, yeah, this is so simple. It's a mark of the beast is a microchip because people are actually going to be paying by doing that. I watched this guy literally on TV, and he's got eight microchips inserted in his hands and in his head. Uh, and they all do different things. And they showed him go out to his motorcycle. And he put this part of his hand by it and the motorcycle started. He went to an ATM and he put his hand by it. And he was able to, to work the ATM because he's got all these different microchips. And immediately everybody's like, oh, that's the mark of the beast. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. Uh, they're working on tattoos now that actually have the ability to, to be like a microchip that the ink itself is able to read your bank account. And so we don't know. Can it be a fancy tattoo? Maybe. Can it be an inserted chip? Maybe. Is it simply the number 666 marked on the hand of the... I don't know, but it is a mark. And again, I will say, those who take it will know that they're taking the mark of the beast. They're not going to be tricked into it. You don't have to be worried as a Christian if you're tricked into it. I got a wonderful email this week. Somebody was wanting to know um, if a demon had, had gotten into their daughter. And I, you know, listen, let me tell you very clearly. If you're a Christian, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You got one possessor. He possesses you by the blood of his, his own life, Jesus Christ. And if you got the Holy Spirit in you, you cannot be possessed by anything. Now, you can be oppressed by a demon, and you, you might have a problem with that, but you cannot be possessed accidentally. So don't worry about those things. And don't worry about, can I accidentally get the mark of the beast? And no, no. We're talking about a time when people will know that they're doing this specifically because they're in with this 10-nation conglomerate, this whole one-world economy, and, and they're getting this because they will be able to do commerce. They'll be able to work. They'll be able to have a job. They'll be able to do things and buy bread. Without it, it will be horrible. So the people will know that they're doing this in allegiance to the new ruler of the world, the Antichrist. That's what's happening Let's go to 14. I ran through that fast and try not to do much glorification of it because we really don't know the answers, but we do know what the Bible tells us is coming. So in, verse, in chapter 14 in this parentheses period, it's a beautiful thing because then God said, okay, this is what's going to happen. Antichrist is going to come. The dragon is given the power. The false prophet is there. They got this unholy trinity, but don't fear. It's going to be short-lived. Three and a half years at most of this kind of a rule. Because in Revelation 14, I'll read it all the way through. We'll see that God is honestly on the throne. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. 
The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. It kind of reminds us of chapter 1, right? No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. I'm not going to take a lot of time because it's a little awkward, but uh, we do see a little refresher that the 144,000 have been rescued and saved. Where are they? Is this a view from heaven or a view on earth? It says Mount Zion, but is it literally Mount Zion here on earth? Uh, could be. I tend to think this is a heavenly view. And what, what he's calling Mount Zion would be a heavenly view. And the 144,000 now are rescued. They're singing a new song. They're redeemed. They're standing before God in heaven. And we have that view from heaven of the 144,000. Verse 6, then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Who are those? Those are Gentiles. Anytime you see that, you're going to see that reference. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and earth and sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is great Babylon, which made all the nations drink of their maddening wine of her adulteries. I'll stop there just for a second. God is going to bring an end to the worship of this world. We give our hearts away to so many things. And this world, called Babylon, Rome, whatever you want to call it, this world is enticing. The world and everything it has to offer us, the, 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 the wines and the beauties and all the decadence it has to offer us is seductive. It's a seductress. And and God is going to call an end to all of that. Babylon will fall. This world and its power brokers will fall. Nothing is going to overcome the name of Christ and the power of God. Nothing will overcome that. The second angel, verse 8, followed by saying, Fallen, fallen is Babacol. The nine, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worship the beast and its image and receives the mark on her forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for the patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die. This is our key verse for the day. In the Lord from now on, yes, says the spirit, they will rest from the labor for their deeds will follow them. I want to stop there for a second. When it talks about the cup of God's wrath, it just had talked about the seduction of this world. And it used the term, the wine. And so all the, all the things that are enticing about this world that could take us away from our love of God, anything that replaces our love of God and puts us on the throne as the consumer is a dangerous thing. But then he turns around and he, he takes that wine reference from the, the celebratory type of a wine to the cup of God's wrath. And then I want to remind us of Jesus. What a great opportunity to stop and remind us of Jesus. Because on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. 
Now, the people didn't remember. I mean, the people didn't know. The guys he was with couldn't even stay up. They were exhausted, and they kept falling asleep as, as Jesus prayed in the garden. And what did he pray? Oh, God, if there's any way, take this cup from me. What's happening in Revelation is the full wrath of God. He compares it in Revelation 14 to the cup of God's wrath being poured out. And you need to remember, and I need to remember, that Jesus, he knew that cup had to be taken by himself. In order for you and for I to be saved, in order for us to be free from sin and not have condemnation, in order for us to be in heaven celebrating him instead of on this earth traveling through this terrible time of of tribulation, he was going to have to take full of the, the wrath of God. And he did that. Even though he said, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way for this to happen other than for me, your son, your holy one, to take this cup, if there's any other way, there was no other way. And Jesus took that full cup of God's wrath, the type of wrath that's being poured out on this earth, all the destruction you see, that was taken by Jesus. And he went to the cross willingly and he drank of that cup fully and he died completely And it wasn't the pain of the the lashings. It wasn't the crown of thorns shoved on his head. Those were awful painful moments. But it was the moment when Jesus became my sinfulness and your sinfulness. The Bible says he became sin. He didn't just put it on for a moment. He became Don Jackson on the cross. He became you and he became me and he died there. And God the Father poured out his wrath on the Son And he couldn't even look at him, and he turned his back on his son. That was the moment of deepest pain. That was the moment when there was no relationship with the father and the son. It was severed because of sin, and it was awful. But Jesus bore that for you and for me. Whenever I see in Scripture that God's wrath is being poured out, I remember, thankfully, Jesus took that wrath for you and for me. And today, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're looking at Revelation thinking, what a terrible thing it would be to live in this time, and and would I take the mark of the beast after after three months, after six months, after one year, you've got three and a half years to go through of living in a world, would you take the mark if you're starving? Would you take the mark if your children were starving and you had to feed them? You think, how long could I last? Friends, I couldn't do a two and a half mile hike in Tennessee. I don't think I'm going to last very long in the Great Tribulation. I don't have a great pain tolerance. I don't want to suffer. We're all pretty soft, to be honest with you. So I think about that, and I think, thank you, Jesus, for taking the wrath in my place so that I can have peace with God. Has there been a time when you've asked Christ to save you and forgive you of your sins and come into your life as Savior and the Lord? My best advice would be to do that now before the trumpet sounds and we enter into a period of what we're reading about. And maybe we have it fuzzy. Maybe we have it little time dated backwards. Maybe we don't have it all clearly now. Maybe, do I think I'm the only one who ever figured out Revelation? No, not at all. So what if I'm off on my timeline? I don't know. Are you willing to risk it all when you've been given an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond today and know for sure that you're gonna be eternally saved? Know for sure. If you haven't done it, I ask you to do it now. 
I ask you to be saved today. Put your faith in God. Ask him to take your sins. Jesus took the full cup of God's wrath. There's no need. So far, we've read about the 144,000. We've heard about an angelic preacher. I want to remind you, again, you might look at this and say, God's wrath is an awful thing to talk about, but he never left himself without a preacher. He never has. There's been someone to spread the word. Right now, we're supposed to be the ones, by the way. We're the hands and the feet. We're the ones that are supposed to be telling the world about salvation now while there's a chance. But even after we're taken away, there's 144,000. There's the Jewish two witnesses. There are, are an angelic preacher who goes to every tribe and nation. You're worried about those who didn't hear. We always hear that. What about that tribe in Africa who's never got the gospel? The angel's going to go there someday, and he's going to tell them. He's going to say, fear God and serve him only. So there's going to be a preacher god never leaves him he he always warns remember he always warns he always provides salvation but people reject it and will perish so here you have a time it's so dark it seems so dark like the tuckalegia caverns or mammoth cave kentucky there's no light and yet god sends even an angel who can speak in every language and tongue to everybody to make sure they hear. And then the fall of Babylon is declared. The doom of the beast, word worshippers, I've already read that. Anyone who takes the mark, anyone who worships the beast, they will be destroyed. And then we get to this part I haven't read yet. Verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. I believe those, again, God's people, the people of God, those are the Jewish people who still remain and they're, they're, they're living through this horrible time. They're going to be martyred. And the Bible says, blessed are they for that. And then 14, I looked and therefore there was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple of heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathering its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside of the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Don't worry, we'll get into the depths of that, and we'll talk about Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. Anybody have anybody been in Israel and looked over this very valley? Anybody besides myself? You been there in Israel? Oh, if you go to Israel, I encourage you to get out to the Valley of Megiddo. And as you look over this vast, vast, flat desert, the Bible says there'll be blood as high as the horse's bridle. That should blow your mind. I sat there and looked out of, out of Megiddo thinking about this and kind of envisioning this battle that's going to come. And our tour guide said, hey, Don, do you see it? I'm like, I'm, I'm thinking, is he reading my mind? He goes, no, look at the, the jets coming out of the ground. He said, there are secret air bases in this field. And as I watched a couple of miles into this, you could see jets rise up out of the desert and take off. They're hidden underground. It's amazing. There's going to be a battle. 
And it's going to happen exactly there. We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But what is this harvesting? There's a great harvest of the earth that's coming. Two things are going to happen. The sharp sickle is going to both reap a harvest of those who did not take the mark of the beast and they're going to be saved. There's another sickle that comes and those that are not, it's kind of like separating the, the wolves, uh, I'm sorry, the sheeps, the, the, the goats from the sheeps. There we got it. There you go. It's going to be a separating of those who are saved and those who are not that's happening here. So much more could be said. And again, I, I know those of you who love Revelation to go deeper, like, whoa, you skipped a lot of details. I, I, I try to be vague on some things. I tried to give you my thoughts on some things. And hopefully you can at least walk through this and get a, a bird's eye view of what's happening in Revelation. If anything, I leave you with the, the call to worship, watch and to warn. And that's the call for today. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to do that Blessed Assurance song. He asked me, which song should we sing for closing? I'm like, something with hope. (laughs) What Blessed Assurance. As you sing this song, maybe the second time through today, as a believer, remember Christ. Remember that because the perfect lamb, not the fake antichrist but the perfect lamb took god's wrath for you and for me so that we can be saved what blessed assurance i have in you i found in you i forgot the rest of the words but we'll sing it in just a second let me pray that father god in the name of jesus we come thanking you today you're our hope in these dark times as we read about these dark Days that are approaching, God, I I just thank you that you're a constant light. God, as a believer, I believe I'm never going to live in complete darkness because I'll always have the light. God, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the, the blessed assurance and the wonderful hope that we have, knowing that our salvation is sure, all because of you, Jesus. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.